care about my vertical. My name's Ben. Uh, I am one of the elders here at Hope. My wife, Marissa, and I have been here for, I guess, about 11 years. Or I think we started coming here when we were pregnant with our first daughter, Lydia, who's now 11. So that's generally a pretty good indicator of uh, how long we've been here is how long Lydia's been here. So um, our daughters, Lydia, are... Lydia's 11 and Greta's eight, and uh, we've loved being part of this church for a long time and have, have loved being part of the overseer team for about the last year. I've been part of the, the group of elders that helps provide spiritual guidance and leadership to the church. I am a non-vocational elder, so I am not a pastor here. My, I'm an elder, and my day job has me elsewhere, and my day job will have me elsewhere quite a bit in uh, two weeks or so. Uh, I am the Vikings beat reporter for the Minneapolis Star Tribune. So my job is to go from late July when the Vikings start training camp to whenever they're done playing sometime in January, maybe February, maybe this is the year, who knows. Uh, I'm at practice and at games just about every day. So when they're home, I'm here on Sunday mornings, usually scooting off to U.S. Bank Stadium right afterwards. When they're on the road, I'm on the road. So I'm not here quite a bit during the fall, but one of the things that this has done is give me a fair number of travel perks, frequent flyer miles, hotel points, all that kind of stuff. So it has allowed our family to do some travel either with them coming along with me to a game like you see in that first picture that there last year, the girls in front of the Tower Bridge in London. That was when the Vikings played uh, in London last fall. They got to come along with that and uh, gotten to come along on a number of different trips when the Vikings are playing. And then also just taking vacations on our own time. Washington, D.C., uh, took a trip around Lake Michigan a couple of years ago during COVID, and then went to Arizona uh, this spring to visit my folks when they were out there for a couple of months. So one of the things that has been fun for us has been to travel, especially as Lydia and Greta have gotten older and have kind of taken on their dad's love of history. That's been a, a thing that has informed some of our trips over the last few years. And one in, in particular that comes to mind with that this was a trip that Lydia and I took to New York about a year ago that we referred to as our geek trip. Um, she turned 10 in April of 2022 and wanted to go to New York, had not been able to get there during the pandemic. So we said, let's go out there, let's go see New York City and do the whole thing. And by the whole thing, it didn't mean as many of the touristy sites. We went up the Empire State Building and, and did that whole thing and took some pictures up there. But a lot of it for us was going to see as many sites related to Alexander Hamilton's life as we possibly could. Uh, we saw the musical, we saw the, the play on Broadway, but we kind of took this to a different level. We went and saw where he was killed in, in Weehawk in New Jersey. Sorry for the spoiler. It's been like seven years since the musical came out and like a, a couple hundred years since he died. So we, sorry, but you should know by now. Um, we went and saw that. We went to his gravesite at Trinity Church, did not get to go in the catacombs of the building to see if the treasure that Ben Gates found there was there. Uh, next time through, we might try it. I don't know. Um, don't, I cannot confirm for you whether that was fictional or real, but we'll, uh, we'll follow up on that later. We went to do that, did a walking tour of a lot of the sites in New York in, in revolutionary times, which really New York City in revolutionary times was really a few square blocks in lower Manhattan. The Wall Street area that we see now is kind of what New York City was. The, the, the picture in the lower left-hand corner here is Federal Hall, which is where George Washington was inaugurated to be the first president of the United States, when New York City was actually the temporary capital of the country when they were deciding where to put the capital on a permanent basis and then just kind of starting the rules of the country. So 
One of the things we saw on this walking tour was Thomas Jefferson's house. We got to see a number of these different things of when Jefferson was the Secretary of State, the first Secretary of State in the history of the country. And one of the things that happens at this house in 1790, I think summer of 1790, is they are trying to figure out where to put a permanent capital. New York City is still the capital at this point. They're trying to figure out where is this thing going to go. So Jefferson hosts a dinner at his house with Alexander Hamilton and James Madison. Hamilton wants to establish the financial system that we basically know today, where the, the national government, that the Congress can tax people on a federal level and can take on debt and, and just kind of be a, a player in the international economy. That was Hamilton's vision for the economy. Jefferson and Madison didn't like it. So they basically said, we will allow you to pass your vision of this, your, your idea for the financial system, if you help us get a capital in the South. So they agreed to this at this dinner. Hamilton says, yes, I will help you with the capital along the Potomac River where James Madison wanted to put it on the border of Maryland and Virginia. Of course, that's where it is now. Washington, D.C. is the capital now. New York City is not. So in exchange for this, Hamilton gets his financial system. We get taxes. You can thank him every April 15th when you have to pay your taxes. He's kind of the reason for that and not just paying to the states. So he gets what he wants. They get what they want. We go on. The musical tells this story from the perspective of Aaron Burr in a song called The Room Where It Happens. Burr is, at this point, living in New York City. He's sort of a contemporary of Hamilton's, kind of a frenemy, I guess, in some ways, where he and Hamilton are, are after a lot of the same things. They're competing for a lot of the same things, but they have worked on the same side for a lot of the early years of the history of the country until Burr finds out that Hamilton is in this dinner with Jefferson and Madison basically making the decision that New York City, where they both lived, is no longer going to be the capital and that Hamilton is going to get what he wants because he's been able to shape the system in the way that he wants to do it. So Burr kind of goes from here, and, and you see this whole thing flip. You see this tension start to arise in the play and, and really in the story of his life where he starts to say, okay, I have to go after the things I want. I have to go after higher office or the ability to have more influence and power and all of these things. And it ends up leading to the fateful duel at the end of Hamilton's life, as it turns out, and really the end of Burr's time as any type of a respectable figure in the society of, of the early colonial days. He basically lived the rest of his life as a pariah after he shoots Hamilton and, and is kind of sees his life kind of go from there. So why do I bring all of this up? The passage we are looking at today is one that deals with a similar sort of reversal where the people that think they're in, the people that think they are in the seat of power or in good standing with God, find out that this isn't really how this is going to work. We're going to look at a dinner in Luke 14 where Jesus spends time with Pharisees to tell them, hey, the kingdom of God is not exactly what you think it is. It's not going to work in the way that you think it is. And a lot of the issues that come from this are the results of the Pharisees sort of saying, okay, um, I'm not sure what this is going to mean for us going forward. So we are in this series called Not Just Another Story that looks at the parables of Jesus. And we look at them through the eyes of this, this idea that the parables have more to tell us than just a story would. It's not just like a fable or a nursery rhyme. There, there's, there's deep truth being communicated here about the gospel, how the kingdom of God works, who God is, and what Jesus was doing 
when he was ministering and then ultimately uh, going to the cross to be our substitution and our sacrifice on his way to being resurrected on Easter Sunday. So we look at a lot of these parables through that lens. And today we're looking at the parable of the great banquet in Luke 14. We need to spend a little bit of time first on how we got here. There's sort of this rising tension that we, we talk about. You, you almost see it like it's in a play where you have this, these incidents that drive the story forward, that drive this narrative, this increasing idea of uncertainty and tension between Jesus and the Pharisees. So we look at Luke 11. It says the Pharisees are lying in wait. That's the language Luke 11 uses, trying to trap Jesus in something he would say. You can almost think of this, this image of like a lion waiting ready to pounce or one of my cats trying to pounce on a mouse that we've seen a couple times. She's pretty good at it, so it's been helpful. Um, but th this language of waiting to trap, waiting to find something that Jesus does or says that they can go to leadership and say, see, this guy is a problem. We need to take him out. That happens Luke 11. Luke 13, Jesus heals a woman on the Sabbath that is described as having what's called a disabling spirit, basically a a spirit or a demon that gives her some type of a physical disability that doesn't allow her to walk correctly. So he heals her. The Pharisees say, you're not supposed to be doing this on the Sabbath. And Jesus basically says, these rules that you keep citing, you don't understand the spirit of them. You have made accommodations to heal or to get your livestock water on the Sabbath. If you are going to attend to the needs of a donkey on the Sabbath, how much more is a human worth? He uses this argument from the lesser to the greater to say that if you can do these things on the Sabbath, we should be able to care for the physical needs of human beings on the Sabbath. They don't still quite like that. So we get to Luke 14, the beginning of Luke 14. They invite him to dinner at their house. And there's still this tension of, are we trying to have a dinner with this guy? Or are we trying to kind of lay a trap for him in, in terms of figuring out something we can finally pin him down with. So he shows up at this dinner and there's this guy there that has something called dropsy. We would call this edema in our current society. We don't really know how he gets there. We don't really know what he's doing there because this is a dinner of rich and powerful people. This guy just sort of is there and, and shows up. We don't quite know how, but Jesus heals this guy on the Sabbath. And again, it becomes an issue. The Pharisees say, hey, you're not supposed to be doing that. And he again says, guys, you're, you're missing the entire point of what this is about, about what the Sabbath is supposed to be about. And, and the fact that if you are able to bless on the Sabbath as Jesus does, you should do it. So he says this and then tells another parable that kind of looks at this idea of where you sit at a banquet. If you show up at a banquet, don't automatically take the best seat for yourself. Sit at the lower places so that somebody may say, friend, move up to a higher seat. And then you receive honor in the midst of the group. Basically the point is, don't make it about yourself. Don't make it so that I am walking into the room trying to receive as much honor as possible. And, and my first thought as I walk into a room is how good can I make myself look? So Jesus shows up, makes everybody mad by the way he heals somebody on the Sabbath, criticizes their dinner practices, and then says, if you're going to have a banquet, don't just invite the people that can pay you back later invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame that can't pay you back and you will receive honor at the resurrection of the just. So he's making everybody mad. It's going really well. Let's, let's get to the passage here and, and see where it goes from here. So he gets done telling these first couple of parables. 
And then there's this guy here that responds in, in verse 15. When one of the, those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Basically he's saying, isn't it great to be us? Isn't it great that we are here, that we have done the right things, that we are those who are with you and we will be like this forever. This is how this is always going to work. This is, this is gonna be great. Jesus says, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because your picture of how this is all going to go in the kingdom of God isn't quite what you're describing here. So now we actually get to the parable of the great banquet where Jesus says, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. So we're, we're in this spot where Jesus basically is telling these people, telling the, the people at the banquet, this is not going to work how you think it is because this is not, the kingdom of heaven doesn't have the type of nature that you expect that it will. So I think it's important for us to spend a little bit of time here looking at who's in, who's out, and, and kind of why all of this happens. So to start with, the banquet structure in these times and Jesus' times would have gone something like this. And it's probably not that different than we would do things now. There would have been an initial invitation to say, hey, we're having this party at this time. You, you know, bring your family, come on out whenever this, when this is. And then later on, there would have been a subsequent invitation to say, everything is ready. We've got the feast ready. Come on out to the party. So the people that said no to the second invitation in all likelihood would have said yes to the first one. They would have said, you can count on us to be there at this time. And then later on is when they start to make all of these excuses where they just come up at the last second and say, I've got this other thing going. It turns out all of this food you prepared, all of these seats you had put in the table for me, uh, I'm, I'm not going to need them because I'm not going to be there. So a lot of these excuses don't really hold water. They sound something like this in this internet meme I found this week. Uh, Sorry, I can't today. My sister's friends, mothers, grandpas, brothers, grandsons, uncles, fish died. And yes, it was tragic. I mean, think if, if you heard an excuse like that, and, and these aren't a whole lot better than that. If you're hosting a party and somebody says, you know what, I can't show because I have a leaky faucet. Not like one that's springing a leak and flooding my house, but there's like this shower faucet that's dripping a little bit. It's been doing it for weeks, but I need to fix it right now. I mean, it, some of these excuses kind of are of this nature and it, it's understandable, I think, why somebody that would hear these excuses would kind of react the way that the master does where it's like, well, really, what's going on here? There must be something deeper 
that is actually happening in terms of how much you want to be here or how much you don't. So I think it's, it's sort of easy to, to joke and easy to jest about these things and, and have some fun with it. But we see throughout these excuses that there's not that much difference between some of the things that we might do. Let's take a, a little bit closer look at the excuses and kind of why they fall flat, but then also why they make some sense in, in things that we might say in our own society. The first guy says, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. I don't quite know, I'm, I'm not a farmer, but if you bought a field last week, what's going to be the difference now? Is it going to be something where the weeds have grown a little bit or maybe your crops are a couple centimeters bigger? I mean, I suppose, but why this is urgent doesn't make a ton of sense. And then the guy that buys five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Five yoke of oxen is 10 oxen at 2,000, 2,500 pounds a piece. So you've bought 20,000 pounds or 25,000 pounds of cattle and you haven't tried them out yet? This is a big purchase. Why would you not have tried this out ahead of time? So this one too is like, why is this happening right now? And then the, the last guy that says, I just got married, I can't show. Maybe a situation was different than mine. When we first got married, I was covering high school sports at the Star Tribune, not making a ton of money. So if somebody had said to me, hey, we got this swanky dinner, I would have been like, I don't know that I have anything to wear. My old Navy polos probably aren't going to be fancy enough for this party, but sweet free dinner. I'm just going to show because I don't want to turn this down. So this guy doesn't even really ask to be excused. He just says, I'm not coming. I just got married. So it, a lot of these excuses kind of fall flat in a lot of ways, but we see in the text, if we go back all the way to the beginning, excuses, there's something about them that are kind of central to our nature. We go back to Genesis 3. <clears throat> when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of the, both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. Do you see here? They move immediately to excuses. The text tells us very explicitly why they did it. If you look back in verse six, it tells us they saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. They knew exactly what they were getting. They knew exactly why they wanted to eat it. This is not what they tell God. They tell God, it's actually your fault because you put this woman here with me and she gave it to me and then the the Eve, when she is confronted with this, she says, it's actually this serpent that deceived me and I ate it. It's not, I wanted to do these things. I liked what this was going to give me. It's, there's something else here that forced me to do this that's not really that big of a deal or it does, it shouldn't be, God's response should not be something that suggests this is as big of a deal as it immediately seems. We believe that the book of Genesis was written by Moses. Moses was not here. 
which means that God had to have given Moses some indication of what Adam and Eve were thinking. When he says, they saw that the fruit of the tree was pleasing to the eye and good for food, Moses has to have some way of knowing that that didn't involve him being there. Like if I was writing a story and and using (laughs) this in a story, if I'm not there, I can't really say it unless somebody has told me that this is true and I can quote them on it. So there's a little bit of that going on here, I think in the text where God has, or the Holy Spirit has illuminated Moses' thinking into what Adam and Eve were doing here. So it tells us that the excuses that Adam and Eve give God didn't work. He didn't buy them because he tells Moses exactly what was going on when Moses is writing the book of Genesis. So they do it, it doesn't work, but there's still something in their nature that makes them do it anyway. And I I think this is where we can probably, again, just like the guys in Luke 14, we can identify with this. We can, we can shake our heads about it. We can laugh about it maybe, but I think on some level we have to understand that excuses and the, the desire to make excuses is central to who we are as human beings. Mary Lamia is a clinical psychologist who wrote this in Psychology Today a couple of years ago about excuses. She says, they may be perceived as, as seeking forgiveness and mitigating personal responsibility which might lessen the anger of the wronged party. However, excuse-making may also be considered to be a conscious attempt to manipulate the emotions of others, a naive theory of emotion that links managing the emotions of others in ways that lead to positive outcomes. Basically saying, if I can get you on my side with my excuse to some degree, your reaction to it might not be as severe or the punishment I may incur might not be as severe. It's just, you know, kids love to do this, especially when they're little. My kids now don't make excuses like this because they're, they're older and they've grown out of these things. But when, they, when they're little, it's the, the, oh, look what happened when there's crayon on the wall. I mean, this is an example. Our kids weren't bad about coloring on the wall too much. But if, if some kid comes through and says, look what happened, and there's crayon on the wall, it's like, no, it's not look what happened. It's look what you did. You colored on the wall. This didn't just magically happen somewhere that there's now crayon on the wall. So we, we like to, I think, even at a very early age, make excuses in this attempt to remove ourselves from something that might hurt someone else's feelings or bring some type of blame or punishment onto ourselves. It, it's very much at a heart level for us. We see this way back to Genesis. And I think our kids sometimes are good mirrors in this way. And we'd like to think we're, I joke about that we've outgrown it, but we just find more sophisticated ways of doing it. I think in a lot of ways where we just find ways to, to dress it up and make it sound a little fancier, but the excuses are, are still kind of always there. So it, it's a heart level thing that Kent Hughes talks about is, is really pretty central to why most of the things that we do uh, put us, put something in the way of our affection for God. He writes, The first two excuses in Luke 14 had to do with material possessions and the third with affections. Possessions and affections cover virtually every reason by which men and women give their regrets to the kingdom. Furthermore, the basic thinking behind their regrets reveals humankind's universal rejection of the kingdom. It is obvious that their refusal to come to the feast was contrary to sound reason. The decision to forego a sumptuous feast prepared for you and your friends to forego the joy and laughter and satisfactions offered in order to visit your properties or your farm machines or even to be with your new wife does not make good sense. They will all be there when you return. 
The real reason the three invitees offered their lame excuses was that they really did not want to go to the feast. The excuses that, in their minds, made attendance at the feast impossible would have evaporated if they really wanted to be there. In today's terms, if they were offered front row seats at the NBA championships or a box seat to hear the three tenors, Pavarotti, Domingo, and Carreras. I'm going to pause real quickly here. This was written in 98. We need to probably modernize this to some degree. We're going to go with box seats at U.S. Bank Stadium for the Eras Tour or wherever Taylor Swift is lurching toward your favorite city now, I think maybe Cincinnati this weekend. If you get those or you're fly fishing on the Madison or you get a week shopping in Paris, you would, you would have found somebody to tend the field, the oxen, and yes, even the home. Make no mistake, the real reason people turn away from the eternal feast is that they do not want to be there. They have no appetite for higher things. I think it's, it's fairly central to where we go wrong a lot of times when we are viewing other things before God. And I think we all have these things. There's, there's one or two things in our lives, whether it's career, whether it's relationships, whether it's possessions, whether it's status, that we like to say, God, I, I know that you're number one. I know that you're supposed to be number one. I love you, but I just have this thing that I can't let go of. For me, it, a lot of times it becomes the career. It's the thing where I'm on the radio or people know my job or want my attention to, to speak at whatever thing about the Vikings or you know whatever it is. There can be a temptation there to say, God, I know that you're number one. Like on a, on a head level, you're number one. But on my heart level, Am I always there? If I'm being honest, no. Like those things for all of us, I think have a way of, of kind of getting in the way and, and sort of uh, making it so that we, we may have this reaction where we, the, the thought, the immediate thought is the, this feast isn't worth my time. There's something better that I want to be doing or something at least more urgent that I should be doing. So you make excuses to skip the party. I think there's also a second way of going about this where, the people that need to be compelled to be at this party might think this feast is too extravagant for me. I don't belong at this feast because I'm not good enough to be there. I don't have anything to bring to this feast that's going to make my presence there desirable. I'm not funny enough. I'm not witty enough. The bag of chips I'm going to bring to the party isn't exciting enough. That would not be true at my party. I'd like, bring your chips. I, I love chips. So bring them to my party. But this one's probably a little fancier than that. So you might be thinking, I don't, I don't have anything to bring. I don't have anything of value that makes me desirable to be at this party. So you might risk missing out on the party as a result of that. If we go back to Luke 21 or Luke 14, 21 through 23, we see this language of go out quickly into the streets and the alleys and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. There's an urgency here to bring in people who would not have been seen as desirable to have at this party. And then the master tells the servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. The roads and the country lanes at this point are outside the city. They are outside the center of resources. They're kind of outside the places where things happen. The rooms where it happens, so to speak, are in the city where things are getting done, where, where decisions are getting made, where power is being shared. People that live outside the city don't have these things. So that the servant is going this far out is pretty counterintuitive to where we would typically see Jesus go, where it's, it's this, this idea of 
all of these people that don't have a lot to offer are being invited. So there may be a thought of why is this person interested in me? Why do they want me at this party? And I think, and Tim Keller talked about this in, in his own sermon on this passage some number of years ago, where this is self-focused as much as the first approach is self-focused, where you're, you're so drawn in by your own mistakes, drawn in by your own shortcomings. Why would this master of this extravagant banquet want me at this party? I don't have anything to bring to the table. Why is it that they would want me here? I think we see all of these things come up, but I also think there's a third way to this that, that ultimately is where we're supposed to land. And it's when we take the focus off of ourselves and we put it on the master of the banquet. It should lead us to this thought process here of this feast is too extravagant for me. And yet, how do I say no to it? When I'm offered this type of opportunity, this type of blessing, this type of chance to be at a, a party this grand, this uh, luxurious, this type of show of affection by the master. And that's what it is. It's, it's the master above all of the other stuff. It's yes, eat the food, drink the wine, enjoy the company. But the fellowship that you have with God is the thing that draws us to this most, that God says, I created everything. And yet I just want to spend time with you. I just want you here next to me to talk and, and catch up and enjoy each other's company. This is what we see happen in the way that Jesus goes out urgently towards people that would have probably not had a lot else to do, that would not have been, it's not like, oh, we have to get these people to the party because they're gonna have five other invitations, so we have to get them secured. This is not the type of people that he would have been approaching here, and yet we see this urgency that I think is driven by nothing other than grace. Robert Capon puts it this way, uh, the point is that none of the people who had a right to be at a proper party came and that all the people who came had no right whatsoever to be there. Which means, therefore, that the one thing that has nothing to do with anything is rights. The parable says that we are going to be dealt with in spite of our deservings, not according to them. Grace, as portrayed here, works only on the untouchable, the unpardonable, and the unacceptable. It works, in short, by raising the dead, not by rewarding the living. The beauty of this is that it has nothing to do with us. There is nothing we can do to earn an invitation to the party. There is nothing we can do to say that, you know what, you're just not our type of people. We don't want you at the party. This is not how this works whatsoever. We get value based on what somebody will do to bring us there. Value in an economic sense, I think, is what somebody will pay to acquire something. If that is the case, we see over and over and over in scripture that what Jesus paid to redeem us, to bring us back is of infinite cost. So the value that we bring has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with the good or the bad or whatever's in the ledger. It has to do with how much somebody would pay to get you. And we see this theme over and over and over in the course of Jesus' life from the beginning all the way to the end. So I wanna spend a little bit of time looking at this reversal that happens throughout scripture and that is outlined in Luke 14 that makes this feast even possible. John 1.1 tells us, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. Nothing was made without him that was made. So Jesus goes from that type of, of seed of primacy from 
before time began to coming to earth as a baby and coming to his own people, John 1.11 tells us he came to that which was his own, but his own people did not receive him. Jesus comes to experience rejection. He comes to experience utter dependency. We, we don't typically sing about this in our Christmas carols, but Jesus needed his diaper changed. Like it, it's, it's a fact of, of humanity that he would have had that level of dependency on those whom he created. The fact that he needed his own creations to keep him alive. My wife, I remember when, when, we, when our kids were young, she used to call that early phase of parenting. And those of you who have young kids know this. She used to just call it the keep them alive phase where it's just like, we need to keep them from uh, putting their finger in an electrical socket or we need to make sure they're fed. We need to make sure they're clean. There's just this basic, we have to attend to base level needs for survival that has to happen when they're that young. And Jesus needed this from the people he created in the very beginning. And we see this continue where there's this rejection. There's this kind of, hey, we don't know if this guy is, is really worth the time. He's a carpenter's son. Why is he a big deal? Why do we need to listen to him? To the point where in Luke 14, he shows up at this dinner and the Pharisees are, are sort of looking for ways to trap him. And they're looking for ways to say, why is this guy not really who he says he is. Luke 15 takes this further. Jesus tells three very well-known parables that don't make a ton of sense in our own way of thinking of things. I, I took one year of economics as a freshman at the U. So I, I, any econ people in the room can tell me if I'm wrong on this, but the idea of opportunity cost is what you give up. The, the next best alternative is what you give up by making a particular decision. So when Jesus goes in the parable of the lost sheep to leave his 99 sheep to receive one back, that is a bad decision economically. You are leaving your 99 sheep to possibly be attacked or to be stolen all in search of the one that got away. That would not be a decision you would make if you were considering the opportunity cost of the decision of the possibility of losing all these other sheep. But the kingdom of God doesn't work this way. Jesus shows this over and over and over. He says there's rejoicing over the one that was lost. It's not about the value that you bring on a debits and credits sort of level. It is about what he paid to bring you back. And we see this continue in Luke 22, Luke 23, where Jesus is betrayed by his friends. He's arrested, he's denied, he's mocked, he's beaten. He is the one that doesn't need to make an excuse. He's the only one that never needed to make an excuse. He's the only one that could ever say, I checked all the boxes, I kept all the laws, I did everything perfectly, I did it without sin. And yet, when he is before Pilate, when he is before the Jewish leadership, the text tells us he does not make an excuse. He does not offer a defense on his own behalf because he knows that the only way to bring us back, the only way to bring us back to the banquet is if he is ultimately crucified and convicted as a criminal which of course he is at the end of his life. And John 19, 17 to 18 puts the text this way where Jesus is actually crucified. And it's important, I think, here to look at the, the geographic as well as the symbolic nature of this because where is he crucified? It's on the edge of town. John 19 says, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Probably a little hard to see this up here, but you can see 
Golgotha, the, the site where Jesus is believed to be crucified, is on the edge of the suburbs, possibly kind of on the north side of town there, but traditionally thought to be on a little bit on the northwest side. But the idea here is that Jesus is sent out of the city, out of the desirable places, out of the center of activity, the center of economy to be crucified as a common criminal on the edge of the city. So when we see the servant going to the the roads and the country lanes, this is physically actually how he does it. This is how Jesus goes to bring us all back, to bring us near by going out to the undesirable places. At the same time, he is fully rejected by the Father. He is taken out of fellowship. This perfect communion he has had with the Father since before time began now turns to, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is cast out. He is basically seen to embody sin. Second Corinthians 5 tells us, God made him who knew no sin, who had done everything perfectly, who never needed to make an excuse to be sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. This is how this reversal happens when Jesus is cast out in full and complete effect of the word so that we can be brought near. Ephesians 2 puts it this way. Remember that at that time, in other words, before Christ, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. And then comes one of these buts that Trex always likes to talk about that we see a lot of in Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There is this reversal that happens where it has nothing to do with us, where we are told, come to the banquet. It doesn't matter what you did. It doesn't matter what you bring. We just want you here. We go back to Aaron Burr and you sort of see this thing happen in the play where when he realizes he's not in the room, he's being cast out, he's being left out, I guess is probably a better way to put it. He starts to get manipulative. He starts to make all these moves. He starts running for president. He starts trying to find all of these ways back into the halls of power. Ultimately, he doesn't get what he wants. He is rejected from these things and ultimately lives the rest of his life as a villain like we talked about. Even if he had gotten those things, This isn't how this works. The kingdom of God doesn't work this way. It doesn't matter how bad you want it. It's not our call to make about whether we are in. It is the fact that Jesus did it all, that Jesus paid all of it for us. He gets to make that decision. And he basically says, if you hear my voice, if you respond and realize what I've done for you, that I can't refuse this invitation, you're welcome to the party. We want you here. You're welcome to come and enjoy all of it. This verse is out in the narthex at, at Hope East and it's on the, the wall right before you head into the sanctuary at Hope West. So probably a lot of us have not been into that sanctuary in quite a while, but that's painted on the walls of both buildings at the church. And Isaiah 55 is the short chapter in the book that talks a lot about how God's plan was always to go to the nations, was always to open the doors and say, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Come buy the best things. Come enjoy the best things without any resource of your own because you have nothing to bring to the table. This is the heart of what Jesus is outlining. This is the heart of the language we see in the kingdom of God where the feast is described as a place that 
the master of the banquet, one who is overflowing with resources, overflowing with generosity, overflowing with creativity, the one through whom all things are created, just says, come, enjoy, receive, be with me. I want you here. I love you and I love you this much that I would send my son to be rejected and cast out in the fullest sense of the word so that you can come to the table and be here forever. This language that we see, come for all things are now ready, is something I think we hear at the communion table a lot. We're gonna get to experience that here in a few minutes. It's this language of, it's been prepared for you. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to bring the bag of chips. You don't have to bring the side salad, all of the potluck stuff that we do at church picnics. And that's great. That's fun. This is not that kind of a banquet. (laughs) You don't need to bring anything to it to earn your way to it because you can't earn your way to it. It's been done for you. All things are now ready. So as we move to a time of application, I just have a couple of quick questions for you. Do you believe that the cost to attend this banquet has been paid? Do you believe that on a heart level? It's really easy. I was talking to a couple of people for a service, just said, this is a hard thing for me to understand. This is a hard thing for me to get on a heart level. Even if I understand the gospel, if I understand it on a head level, it's hard for me to, to internalize this idea that the, it's been paid. I don't have to do anything. There are no strings attached to get to this banquet. So those are my questions. Do you believe it's been paid? Do you believe that the, the free grace of the gospel leads you to the table with no strings attached? I want to invite the worship team back up. We're going to sing a couple of songs to close as we take some, some time uh, remembering what Christ did for us through communion. This, this language of come for all things you're now ready, like I said, I think outlines this table. Everything that has needed to happen for you to partake in Table fellowship with the creator of the universe has been done for you. Christ's body has been broken. His blood has been shed for us. So we get this opportunity every time we take communion to remind ourselves that it has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with the lavishness of God's grace. It it is because he said, I don't care what this is worth. It's worth this much to me that that's why we have value. That's why we are brought to the table That's why we get to come enjoy the feast. So we're going to take a couple of, uh, these last couple of songs, we're going to spend some time worshiping God, uh, spend some time taking communion. If you have prayer requests, there'll be people down front that would love to pray for you. So I'll I'll, I'll close this in prayer here and then we'll we'll end our time in worship and, and taking communion. Jesus, it should shock us that we are invited to this banquet, that we are given the opportunity to partake in all of these things, despite what we've done, despite the times where we've said, you know what, this this thing in my life is more important to me than you are. And yet you say over and over and over, I know, but I forgive you. I love you. I just want you to come. And this is the, the way in which I'm going to show it. So we thank you for the fact that you don't give up on us, the fact that you continue to pursue, that you continue to chase us down, out into the, the, the streets and the alleys and the undesirable places, all of the things that we have done, you continue to say, I am big enough. My love for you is big enough to overcome these things to the point where I'll go to the cross on your behalf. So we thank you that you've done that for us, God, and we pray that that would be on our hearts through this week, that we would know that even though it has nothing to do with us, we are loved more than we could possibly imagine. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for this. And we pray that you would be glorified through the rest of our time together. Amen.